0: to another edition of Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm your host. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. This episode is presented as a kind of teaser for Ottawa's bilingual poetry festival, VerseFest. From November 6 to 22, VerseFest returns with an entirely virtual program featuring 60 poets in English and French. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season. It's all available online at writersfestival.org. And all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please consider making a donation to support our virtual programming, as we can't do it without you. I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin. And wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby or online who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Today, we'll be spotlighting two amazing poets with new collections out from Arsenal Pulp Press. Sachiko Murakami and Gillian Christmas spoke with Nina Jane Drystek. Nina is a poet, writer, and performer based right here in Ottawa. Her original sound poem scores can be heard on Bandcamp, and she was shortlisted for the 2020 Bronwyn Wallace Award for Poetry. Up first, it's Jillian Christmas. Educator, organizer, and advocate, Jillian is the former artistic director of Vancouver's Verses Festival of Words. Utilizing an anti-oppressive lens, Jillian has performed and facilitated workshops across North America. The Gospel of Breaking, a poetry collection, is her first book. She extracts from family history, queer lineage, and the political landscape of a racialized life to create a rich, softly defiant collection of poems. Here's Nina's conversation with Jillian Christmas.
1: Hey, Jillian. <laughs> um, <Hi. laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you for this collection of poems. It's really lovely to read them um, in book form and to like have them sort of all in one place. Um, and I know
2: this is, this is your first book, right? Sex? It but, is. It's yeah. my first collection, but it took a while to get here.
1: <laughs> yeah. How does it feel to have this collection together and like out in the world now.
2: Yeah, it's amazing. I um you know, I've been performing for over a decade now and my work primarily lives on the stage, but I it it felt um yeah, like an effort towards legacy building and um accessibility and um uh yeah, just to have the words um sort of live another life on the page than they even have the opportunity to on the stage. That was a really cool thing. Um, and yeah, of course, the journey, um, this work uh, really collects uh, my poetry uh, from over that period of time, like a decade of, of stage work, and then um, other pieces that were purposefully written for the book. So uh, it feels like a big accomplishment to kind of come to the end of that process and to be happy with it at the end, because, um, you know, while I think I could have birthed it sooner, it's uh, it feels very much like the book it was supposed to be, so...
1: Yeah, and I did notice, like, I was, I went back and I listened to a few of the poems that are in this book, which is, um, which is a really cool gift to have, where you have, like, the book, and then you can then hear, um, hear it performed as well, so it gives it that sort of extra dimension. Um, how did you go back and, like, pull those pieces, like, how did you know which pieces to pull together?
2: Yeah, that was the big challenge. That was the big, one of the biggest challenges that I faced was um, to, you know honor the pieces that were written for the stage um and because i you know i think i could have written poems that were all purposefully written for the page um and uh, sort of ignored the the history um, and that sort of continuum mm-hmm. of my work um, to, to satisfy a particular audience. But it felt really important to me to bring along um, all of the pieces that uh, people already um, are fond of or have connections to, to things that are uh, important to me in that sort of lineage of work. And, um, and so I started with choosing my favourites and the ones that really felt like they... Um, still felt true to me maybe not like that the moment is still true but that whatever lesson was pulled from that moment or um uh understanding of myself uh that that still resonated um so i chose those poems from my um sort of uh, arsenal of (laughs) of words and and then um i took some time to figure out what felt missing and some of the things that felt missing i wrote toward and i included those in the book and some of the things that felt missing i didn't Uh, you know come to completion within the way that I wanted and so those kind of got put aside for future projects and um, and then I it felt really important to me Uh, one of the biggest pieces was to travel back to Trinidad and Tobago um, where my parents are from and where my lineage is from and um, my heritage and uh, and visit with my grandmother I spent a month with my uh, paternal grandmother and uh, just on the land and uh, learning a lot Um, And understanding more about my family, uh, my family story and how I came to be here, um, you know, in Canada on Turtle Island and now here on the these unceded territories of the Musqueam, Slewaduth and Squamish. uh, It was a journey. And so I wanted to go back to collect some of those stories as well. Um, And then I had to find ways to sort of weave them together. And so if reading the book, you might notice that um, the stories that come from my mo- my grandmother my my uh, paternal grandmother's uh sort of environment and and realm um they're all held within parentheticals um just to kind of uh sort of acknowledge that that is uh, her space in the book and cool. it, it it made sense as i sort of started to filter the poems to organize the book around those pieces um and so uh, I sort of organized the pieces thematically, um, grouped them behind uh, this, uh, these doorways that were sort of op- opened by my my grandmother, Mommy.
1: Because you use Mommy, and then there's also your
2: mother is also yes. in the book, right? I'm not, okay. And and my maternal grandmother as well. And so your maternal grandmother, okay. Yeah, yeah, so in the, um, in the book, my maternal grandmother is, um, it says for Sylvia, for that poem, um, <laughs> Things that is, I Can yeah. Do. Um, my mother, I refer to as as Mama, I, I believe, and, and sometimes my mother, or mother, or something like that. And then um, uh, Mommy is my my paternal grandmother. And in the back of the book, you can see it says uh, for for um, Mama, Mum, Mommy, and Daddy too. And, and Mum is what I called my uh, maternal grandmother, who I was very close with um, throughout most of my life before she passed. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that was that one for the poem for Sylvia it is like a that was one of the ones I was looking at again today as I was getting ready for this interview. It's a beautiful um yeah. I think for me one of the most heartbreaking pieces
2: in the book. Um yeah. Uh, yeah. That one means a lot to me. Thank you for kind of giving it some attention. I I appreciate that.
1: There's a lot of love um and care. Um and also like There's also like the complicated relationships Mm -hmm. which you talked about. Um, The one about, I believe it's mommy, where you talk about how um, your grandmother, I guess your paternal grandmother, would change things if she could, even if that would change everything Mm -hmm. that came after. And I thought that was bigger plum. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you talk a little bit about, because that was also a standout um, piece for me as well.
2: Yeah, that piece, um, definitely one of the stories that I I, I went, uh, I had to live to sort of um, take back with me. Um, yeah, it, it was a challenge, that one. I think when I first wrote it, it was one of those pieces, not all pieces are like this, but it was one of those pieces that felt so uh, raw and like still vibrating inside of me, like the emotion of it that I was like, I don't even know if I can show this to people. Like, I don't even know if I want other people to... Um, have these like uh you know i don't know like perceptions of or limited perceptions of my family because you know we're all dynamic humans and there's like this story but there's also seven million other stories that Mm -hmm. um sort of interweave to make the story of us and so um yeah, but it felt really important. Um, and it felt like it It spoke very much to um, the this lineage that I've always uh, really respected and um, had admiration for in my in my family line, which is the, the lineage of, of really empowered um, femmes and women who have sort of carved their own way and um, not necessarily um, uh, subscribed to Uh, what society or family um, might dictate for them.
1: I think that you also are achieving that. You have like a very strong voice that comes through these poems. um, And there's in the poem, um, will you write it? Um, You really, you sort of connect with that inner voice um, and go through sort of like the encouraging the voice, um, the encouraging voice within and urging you to write. Um, And then... Leading you to write and asking people like then becoming the voice at the end of the poem, urging the reader to open up um, your mouth, sweet child. Your voice has always been there, always worthy, always urgent, open up your mouth and sing.
2: Um, That piece. uh, It's funny that that one is the one that you should uh, mention, because I was as I was sort of reflecting on what I might um, offer in conversation today, I I was thinking about that piece. Um, It's a piece that I wrote um, after uh, Maya Angelou, Dr. Maya Angelou, who um, was, uh, you know, radically changed my understanding of poetry and um, I felt like offered me an invitation into it when I was a, a childhood, very quiet child, uh, with a, a lot of difficulty articulating my feelings. And, um, and, uh, you know, it talks about other places that I, I found solace and, and shelter, but um, Maya Angelou's work, really, I could see myself in it. Um, and, for for me, the way that I was introduced to poetry through her work, um, and really uh, um, found myself in there, that was like a portal. It was like a doorway to um, my entire life as it is right now. And I think without that guidance and that um, voice of encouragement that she planted in me, and other people as well, teachers and things. But you know, she uh, reading her books as a as a young person. Um, it it really planted a drive in me to utilize my voice to empower other people. And um yeah, so that, that poem really feels important in that um it feels like the the turn where um rather than um you know sitting in that that role of of student or person being motivated to turn that energy um toward creating more space for other folks to um, see themselves in the work as well.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that Sort of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning like documenting that work you've done in a form where like you know young people are um picking up books and reading them and looking for themselves and to have you know uh mm. I'm not sure how you like to define yourself and I don't want to define but yeah, yeah, yeah a queer black woman from the yeah. Caribbean like writing and having a Having like a book, um, yeah. as well as a performance.
2: Representation is so important, and that's exactly you, you um, hit the nail on the head there. I think it's that that full circle, um, and and offering people the kind of examples that I had or wished I had. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I was um, I was talking about this interview with um, a friend yesterday, and I mentioned I was speaking with you, and um, he's part uh, was is part of the spoken word scene in Ottawa. Oh. I was like, Jillian's one of those. Uh, one of the spoken words who people who's moved to a book and I think there are more books by spoken word poets coming out uh, I don't know if it's I'm sure there's waves of this over time so I want to be it's the first time ever but um mm-hmm. it is happening a bit more like there's a press that's pretty much dedicated to doing that which is right yes absolutely um, right, uh, right North yeah. is,
2: is incredible and I do think it is uh, it happens in sort of waves um and I'm so happy to see um so many of the the folk who are have been kind of in cohort with me uh as we move through this like slam spoken word um you know realm uh like finding new avenues new places to put their poetry and um and growing through that process
1: so obviously we begin writing on pages <laughs> like all right all poets do <laughs> i think maybe no no not no even. <laughs> not even yeah but no. how is it like uh, your work is also like as I look at it from a page poet perspective, it's like, it plays a lot with form. It's no poem is written the same way. It's, you have a lot of variety. How is it taking those poems that are spoken that were written for the stage and bringing them to the page? Like, can you tell me a little
2: bit the process? Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna say a few things because first I wanted to acknowledge what you said around um, we write first and and all poets do that. And I don't think that that's true actually. I know, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I mean, for me, When I think about my tradition of poetry, spoken word, oral tradition, like it goes way back to oral tradition. um, You know, I think it comes out of West Africa comes out of um, the Caribbean call and response. And and so many of those things, they are are not written down and, and passed along from generation um, through our voices. Uh, I, and in addition to that, sort of looping back into what you were talking about with the book and sort of legacy building and leaving an example uh, and a footprint, um, one of the reasons why I wanted to create this book um, or why it felt like suddenly more important to me, because I'm quite happily, you know, a performance poet. Um, uh, But one of the things that really compelled me, um, a friend of mine uh, passed in 2014, and he uh, was not just my friend, he was so much more than that. He was an incredible spoken word artist, uh, Zacchaeus Jackson-Nice, who uh, really dominated the scene and and, um, did uh, a a lot to to, um, create a vibrant community within it. Um, He never wrote any of his things down oh. he actually for a very long time um was kind of you know well before his exceptional spoken word career um you know he was a little more transient and and um uh had moments where he didn't have uh you know books and things to write in and so he uh memorized his poems more in a style of like um Uh, a freestyle rapper or something like that and so I always find that really interesting I I found it I found it really inspiring um, knowing him but I also um, when he passed realized that none of his work um, you know I mean while we could watch videos and whatnot um, Mm -hmm. which are really valuable you know not everybody has that uh, um, it's just nice to have it on paper you know people you can have it in schools and people can uh, experience it in different ways so uh, part of of our work after he passed was to um, make ways to transcribe his work and put it on paper, and that really yeah. pushed me to to writing down and and creating this um, this um, sort of tangible piece uh, that I could offer to people. Um, and and to answer your question about um, you know transitioning some of the poems from the page to the stage, um, yeah, I think I I put a lot of focus and a lot of time in um, into that work of finding ways that the work would maybe not be exactly the same as not even have the same impact, but like, um, you know, have the um, uh, carry the mood or um, the message of the of the piece from the stage to the page and and finding different ways to do that. So where I might use repetition um, on the stage, you know, because we don't have the the possibility for like back scanning a poem. Um, You know I I maybe changed that on on the page because it it didn't need that repetition, but maybe it it needed something else like a visual representation of like um, the push that I would put in my voice and so you see sometimes like Mm -hmm. uh, in one poem the font darkens um, to sort of demonstrate the mood that would be offered on the page or um you know you see the shape of the poem kind of dives like really narrow sort of down the page to demonstrate sort of um what I might be doing with my body uh on stage and like the way I might take up space uh differently um to indicate, you know? So I just, I, it was actually really cool. It, it scared me at first trying to do this translation. Uh, and then um, I sort of realized that I could give my poems as many lives. <laughs> and I say this to my students sometimes, but I, I had to relearn it myself, uh, you know, giving my poems as many uh, voices or, or lives as they need to, to tell the story. So it ended up being a really cool game doing this <laughs> this trans- translation. Yeah.
1: That's awesome. I love that you're referring to it as a translation, um, mm-hmm. uh, because embodiment is something that I hear a lot of talked about in poetry and I talk about it all the time too, but just like literally like physical performance into, Mm -hmm. into the page.
2: Well I think that one of the cool things about performance is that you you can layer elements right you can Mm -hmm. like I love performing um, you know with my voice and then having a musical instrument or something like that or uh, the movement of my body or even just my facial expressions that cue to the audience uh, a little Mm -hmm. bit more about the poem they reveal like a little more one more layer and so trying to find ways to do that on the page was interesting like with the you know the weight of the the um ink or with the um the font or um sort of uh um capitalization in certain places and not in others you know those kinds of of things that many poets before me have have toyed around with I I I tried my hand and (laughs) and I think I did some interesting things yeah
1: absolutely I um I definitely do and like the one where the boulder that's like the control the alt delete one like I was Um, really that one
2: too but I was actually thinking about the um the uh, sort of creepy story that I tell with the liquid moving across the floor. Um, the font kind of darkens. Oh, it goes from yeah, light to dark um, to sort of indicate that creeping feeling. Yeah.
1: Okay. Ah, uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to revisit that one. Yeah, I was like, I did, cause I was I, knowing that you are a performance poet. I was trying to like, like the the italics for singing. There's mm-hmm. one I was listening to today, but you start with by singing it, and the mm-hmm. first section is singing, and then and it's all in italics, and I was like oh that's what that meant like that was the yeah cue. yeah um exactly. so it was really fun to read
2: in that sense as well um oh my gosh thanks for exploring <laughs> it in that way that's so nice I mean I hoped that people might you know um enjoy that sort of multi-sensory experience by exploring it in that way and I'm really glad to know that you um you dove into it thank you
1: yeah absolutely the book is well there's book has lots of layers to it but I found this really like sort of smaller thread which is this like the darker side of humor or humor. Um, like you taught. You have a poem about Robin, Will- the death of Robin Williams. And you have a poem called um, Joker, which is also a dark, mm-hmm. a slightly darker poem about humor. And then you have a poem that literally made me laugh out loud, which is um, the bike poem. It's also sad because it's about your bike being stolen. Yeah, it's a little dark. Too. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little dark, but it's like a visceral, like I really had a, I mean, there are other visceral responses, but that laughter, which is like mm-hmm. a, I felt like that was like a nice cap. Like you've got, I don't know. You get the darkness, and then you get the like extreme reaction, which is just laughter, is in some ways.
2: You know, I um I appreciate that, and I uh I love that that poem, the bike poem. Um, you know, because of what it it pulls out in people, people um you know kind of get delighted, and and it was the first time I ever tried uh, performing something funny. Um. Uh, you know, and and I was really mad. I, I I wrote that poem the day after my bike was stolen, and I performed it that morning or not that morning, sorry, that that evening at a a slam final, which I won, which I was very happy about. But I think I won because people were like, "What? We've never even heard her do this before." It was it was really cool to explore it because I've always had such admiration for comedians. Like I think. Um, and I not all comedians, don't get me wrong. I think it's just such a hard thing to do to mm-hmm. um, to be funny uh, and wise at the same time, you know, and uh, um, and not that everything has to be highbrow, but I uh, I really admire people who can do that. And I often say I have a friend who's a comedian um, uh, and, and we talk back and forth about our practices. And I often tell him, like, I think what you do is so much harder than what I do, because, um, you know, when people walk into a room with an expectation to laugh like you really got to prove some stuff, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I can make people cry. I can take you to your feelings. You know, I got lots of feelings to take you to, but um, the laughter, I think is such a sacred thing. And I, I uh, really, um, I'm glad that there was space for, for humor in this book. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad too. And it's funny how those pieces make their way in when you don't expect it. (laughs) This is again, circling back a little bit. We were talking about, um, when you were talking about your, your mother's um, and sort of the movement of people. I, one of the other poems that stood out for me, which is near the end of, or closer to the end of the book, I won't say, but the the Northern Light poem, um, Mm -hmm. which is um, very much about like, well, movements of people and like living um, or, being settlers in sort of colonized territories and how the territories are built. You're writing about the Alaska highway, but you have this line where it says, what strange things are we that we see a barrier, but build a road. It also made me think about um, the possibilities for poetry. I'm thinking again, like, Oh yeah, the road poetry, these words are a road that can help us, Mm -hmm. you know, make that crossing. I was wondering, um, I was wondering how you think about poetry. I don't want to impose again, what I reading (laughs) on what you see it as.
2: I mean, I think about um, yeah. I, I that poem was written um, while I've spent some time in the Yukon, and uh, I've been lucky to be invited up there um, to do some work, and and so I got to um, you know when asked to to write towards that space. Um, i of course had a lot of research to do it was very important to me that i get it right um and uh, and understand the the history there um and the impact the great impact that um black uh canadians have had um and you know the the complexity of all of that um so i i was honored to be able to write the poem um i think that uh, as poets, we have a duty to speak about what the the moment is to, to reflect on our history so that we can imagine the future. Um, and, you know, they say, um, you know, first, like laws change, and then society catches up. That's kind of like the way that the movements kind of go uh, in society. This is, this is a thing that people say, and I think it's true, you know, um, people push and then the laws change and then sometimes it takes time for the culture sorry for the culture to shift like collectively Uh, and I think that as artists our role is to be ahead of that even you know to like be that driving force that um, can collect the voices of the people and push at, at at the Culture shift, um, push at our governments, um, push at our like sort of collective understanding of each other um, so that we can imagine better, always imagining better. Um, and you know, so many incredible artists, Toni Morris and Octavia Butler, have um, really given us a blueprint for how to do that. So I am, um, yeah, I'm honored to be part of that sort of uh, legacy of, of writers, artists who. Um, can hold space for imagination and, and um, futurism. Yeah.
1: What you've just said also makes me think of your role as an organizer. Um, like you organize events um, in in Vancouver. As I
2: you- did for um, six six and a half years. Okay. Um, work with Versus Festivals, artistic director, um, and uh, and also I. Um, Uh, I'm the speaker and talent coordinator for uh, Stratagem, which is a conference annual conference that's put on by Cicely Blaine consulting around uh, workplace uh, justice and um, yeah visualizing a future that is um, free of uh, the oppression that we exist in right now and um, uh, calling all of our resources to do that um, with anti-oppressive uh, frameworks. So that's amazing work. And um, and I do other programming as well. I'm I'm the um, spoken word coordinator um, or um, uh, spoken word guest curator of uh, Vancouver Writers Fest. Uh, we'll be doing some some shows for that. And uh, yeah, and I really um, have been organizing for the last you know 12 years or so because I just I feel like uh, as much as we can. It, uh, making space for other voices, prioritizing voices that are not, um, you know, often heard or that get marginalized and, and dismissed. And uh, um, yeah, if I have energy and resource, I think it's important to um, to make more opportunity for those those voices to be heard.
1: Awesome. Um, uh, do you think we could do your piece now? And then maybe mm-hmm, there's I'm a sure. few more questions.
2: Uh, afterwards yeah I'm going to play with the uke and um, I you know in um, <laughs> the legacy of being uh, poorly prepared my nails are long right now so we'll see how, <laughs> how good this goes but I'll do my very best I think um, I think we'll get something out of this and uh, thank you for inviting the piece uh, this piece is called They Said We Wouldn't Need These Life Jackets on Dry Land Mama remembers herself a little girl turned away from a birthday pool party Mama remembers herself a little girl Turned away. before we fly from Trinidad to the small island we drive up the hill to stay in the big hotel now newly renovated it has stood on this same perch for the better part of a century mama remembers herself a little girl turned away from a birthday pool party because this big North American hotel didn't yet let brown girls bathe themselves in full sunlight, somehow scared the world would be hypnotized by the shine. Probably even mama didn't know she was a diamond in a pool of glass, the way they treated her. the hotel nearly 50 years later standing new and shiny on the same cursed spot we learned that the pool is the last piece of renovations it will not reopen until after we leave today i saw a small blonde haired girl drift back and forth back and forth, impossibly buoyant child, carried upward atop a weightlessness so deep and vast that she could not touch her feet to the bottom. The big blue stretched out around her, a clean white tile framing the scene in its perimeter. Mama was a little girl once, once I was two. Probably always will be someplace. After hours of travel, I pull the tiny computer from my pocket. I, each blue image pouring from its screen. Everyone erupting new color. Some unknown and yet beloved brown face smiling after another. A newsreel of necessary medicine. Dancing dark girl pops her shoulder in my direction. Mean mugs until the camera looks away. Brown skin boy and his father blow each other kisses with the tenderness that quenches my dreams. The remedy is loving each other harder. Loving these brown bodies more than water and deeper still. Mama remembers herself. Mama remembers herself. Mama remembers.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. That was, yeah, so beautiful. I love, yeah, Mama was once a little girl once, or Mama was a little girl once. Once, I was too. Maybe always will be someplace. I was like, that was, uh, yeah. Thank you. love that part. Um, How, I guess, this piece is from those travels that you did back uh, to Trinidad, I imagine
2: yeah it's actually a blend it's interesting i um so it's partially from the time um there's the story of going to trinidad and tobago it's not the visit with my grandmother although we did see my grandmother it's not the month it was um uh the year previous um with my my parents traveling and learning some of these stories as well and um uh and then later on, uh, when I was completing this book, I, I carried a lot of these stories to sort of parse them and understand them better um, to my residency at uh, the Banff Centre, uh, where I did a lot of sort of piecing the book together uh, with my incredible um, mentor, um, Tanya Evanson. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that was incredible. And yeah. Um, it was then the 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 second piece of the story, the watching uh, the girl, and sort of like the the um, balance between and the comparison between sort of this lightness of experience um, uh, in this space versus the sort of challenges and barriers mm-hmm. that existed um, uh, for both my mom and myself in this story. And um, yeah, uh, so it was a, a story that kind of grew um, in stages.
1: It really stood stood out for me. Um, in terms of like its structure and the story that it tells um, and how you've woven it together. Um, I'm curious about that extra layer, the ukulele, like how did that get layered in here just from a performance aspect, I'd love to know.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I love bringing instrumentation to my performance uh, whenever possible. Uh, and and actually when I play, play that, it was interesting playing it right now because I typically play it with the drum as well. I have the, mm the kick and the hi hat as well, which helps me sort of stay in a kind of rhythm with the piece. Um, Mm. So it was a, it was a new and um, like adventurous experience now doing it, sort of pairing it back with just the two, the two voices, mine and the, and the ukulele. But um, yeah, I I think that uh, one of the things that I I hope to do when I bring instrumentation into the performance is to, um, you know, offer another context for the piece um, to create a mood or an environment um or some sort of thread that can help sort of carry the rhythm of the piece and um you know help, help travel the the listener through it um so yeah that that's something that I I always have uh I always seek opportunities for that um and a lot of my work that I perform has some layer of musicality with it and this um this particular um Melody is something that grew like many of mine do, you know, from just uh, noodling and spending time um, in uh, quiet time, you know, kind of uh, expressing um, non-verbally uh, with just the ukulele. Mm-hmm. And often, um, you know, when I feel like whatever melody has has found its, its personality or its voice, I can figure out which poem in uh, my mm-hmm. collection Um might be a good collaboration with that might be a good fit. And uh, um, yeah, it's like, you know, two, two parts of a personality and uh, they, they each give us more information about the whole.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that, yeah, having, I'm going to now hear this poem with the ukulele forevermore. (laughs) And maybe one day I'll hear it with the drums and it something else totally for me.
2: Totally another Um, experience entirely.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so I guess if you wrote this one at the Bant Center, it started off as a piece for the book more so than for a performance. Do you think you're going to continue exploring writing for books are you going to keep blending the stage and the how do you see your right like has this changed your experience of writing
2: i mean i certainly uh hope to have many more books um i think i have many more books inside of me and and um evidenced sort of by the process of building this one and and having pieces that didn't make it in or, um, that I want to like flesh out more. I really know that there are more stories I want to tell. So, um, yeah, I'm, I I think there will be more books in the future. I think some of them will be poetry and maybe some of them will be novels. Um, I know I've got some children's book that children's books that are just waiting to burst out of me. So that's (laughs) definitely on the table as well. And, um, yeah. And I, you know, the, like the future of, um, live performance is kind of, uh, in uh, an interesting place right now, which is not to say that it's it's halted entirely. I'm actually performing a number of uh, events um, uh, this month in, in, and further into November and, and have been performing a lot online. Um, so that's kind of the shape of it right now. I'll be um, it's cool because in my living room I have my drum kit you can't see it right now but behind me there's a drum kit and so it has been nice in a way to be performing from my living room to um you know have access to all of my instruments and and um all of my comforts and and then to be done with the show say good night to everybody and uh, roll onto my couch and <laughs> order a pizza <laughs>
3: it's really great yeah, you like,
1: don't have to be on the commute is excellent like, <laughs>
2: Yeah. yeah, you get yeah, it's
1: true. It's true. Do you miss do you miss any do you miss the live audience though of course. well? Yeah. Yeah, of
2: course. <laughs> you know, I, I as a as you know, a spoken word artist, especially with roots in, um, slam, uh, you know, one of the the things that I've always loved about slam, um, as an, as a sort of venue for spoken word is that, uh, it really encourages feedback from the audience. And, um, you know, there are all these call and response elements to slam. And so, uh, you, not only the call and response, but also, you know, yeah, people are sort of, um, educated about how they can, um, uh, inform the the performer right? whether they're vibing with it, whether they're not into it, whether you know. And we have these little like phrases that we use, or the snaps, or the umms, mm-hmm. or the whatever, and you get um, immediate feedback, which is a cool thing, especially when you're experimenting and writing a bunch of stuff. It's like, does this work? Does that work? How does this work? Does this work differently in this space or with this voice or whatever? And you can really explore that in in a, a venue like um, slam or on stage doing a spoken word performance. Anything that has that kind of um ability to to share energy and create a communal space um so it's been an interesting sort of challenge to move that onto the the digital space but um I've been finding little ways I've been finding little ways and I've been comforted by that because I I I often say that I'm not super comfortable on the internet (laughs) I'm getting more and more comfortable on the internet um but uh one thing that's brought me a lot of comfort in the last little while, um, you know, there've been there've been shows that didn't go great because of like Zoom trolls or oh. uh, tech issues or whatever uh there's been some shows that were really amazing and really connective and really um present and uh and so learning from those and learning how to figure out uh, how to carve out those experiences how to make sacred space space that really feels like um like there's a shared uh energy happening here uh and a shared moment um yeah i'm I'm figuring out some tools and um that's really cool That's, that's a really cool thing to explore something mm-hmm. I didn't think I would lean into but I guess 2020 <laughs> has its own ideas about what's what's gonna happen so you just gotta go with it yeah, <laughs> yeah. Riding, the yeah. <laughs> riding the wave
0: that was Nina Jane deck in conversation with Jillian Christmas please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend if you enjoy this podcast or any of our virtual programming please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. Up next, it's Sachiko Murakami. Render is her intimate and unflinching new book. In it, she travels the nonlinear path of addiction to recovery, how it shifts over time, and what happens when it is translated through poetry. Looking beyond the straightforward, happily ever after narrative, Murakami wades through the aftermath of addiction and questions what happens to trauma when it is put down on the page and all the ways in which it can be rendered. Here's Nina Jane Dryzek in conversation with Sachiko Murakami.
1: Um, it was really nice to encounter this um, beautiful and also spacious collection. Sort of like I uh, like how it's laid out, which is very different from your last book. And I was wondering if maybe we could start by talking about sort of like how this collection came to be, as as a person, a bit more personal than other pieces you've
3: Sure. I came to poetry at a time that was very uh, kind of not, I wouldn't say anti-confessional, but um, really there, there was always like a hesitancy to identify the eye with the speaker of the poem. And it was uh, just really kind of, it was not frowned upon, but not assumed that you would write about yourself you would write about other things and all of my books before this one are about stuff right they're about um issues and um kind of bigger ideas um although get me out of here is also kind of a lot about um is more about me as well um but like i'm in all of my other books like my first book was about the missing and murdered women in the downtown east side Mm -hmm. or about vancouver at the time and my way into that um issue was my relationship with my mother who lived down there at the time and rebuild was about Vancouver real estate. Um, but also about the death of my father. Um, and so when I started writing render, I thought, well, um, I started to do a lot of like research about dreams and, um, stuff. And then I just stopped and I thought, well, maybe I'll be the subject this time. Um, because there's a story or not so much a story, but like, and some issues that I, I want to kind of explore. um, And I can use myself as kind of the case study.
1: How did that feel? Like, how
3: was making that switch for you? Did that seem like a Um, switch? Well, because I'm always, I've always been in, like, I've written about like personal things before. It Mm. wasn't that, um, it wasn't that much of a switch. It was just that that was like the total focus. Um, and yeah, no, it was fine. I'm, I, I, I feel like I've said this a few times. Like I, I feel emboldened by, um, the poets that are younger than me that just seem to feel like this is a legitimate thing to write about me, me is a, a legitimate subject. And I feel like I feel really like freed by that. Um, because I I kind of always felt like I was sneaking myself in. Mm. Whereas now I feel like, oh, no, I'm a legitimate subject. That's something that I can write about. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, but it is like, billed as like a poetic memoir. Uh, yes. It isn't quite like, it's not really, it doesn't really have like a, like a, like a very clear narrative. It's mm. kind of, Um, it's not like here's the story of my life it was it's really uh, about a specific part of my life which is my addiction and my recovery Um, Mm -hmm. and it kind of goes through my dreams yeah
1: yeah I like I I really like I loved the shift and I I like I feel like you played with a lot of elements that you did in your other work like you have the the visuals you have do the mapping piece as well still and there's a lot of movement and I felt like in these poems, like whether it's in the dream world or like the real world in your experience, you're looking a lot at space, which I thought was really interesting in terms of your titles also render, which is like, um, which you define as to submit as for consideration, to give or make available, to give is what are due or, or owed to give in return or retribution, um, and you sort of define the verb. Um, but I felt like it was also really about space and maybe more like the noun of a render. Um, so I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that.
3: Yeah. Um, well, space, I think for me is like very tied to memory, which is, um, also kind of a big part of the book is, um, kind of the way, uh, memory is kind of, uh, diluted or eroded by trauma, um, and also addiction. So, um, I guess that the, the poems that are about spatial, spatiality, especially specifically about place, mostly about Vancouver, um, because that's where kind of my worst years happened. Um, they're, they're kind of about how the kind of difficult relationship I have with that kind of with Vancouver as a place because of all the terrible memories there. Um, and also just kind of trying to situate myself, um, in a, in a place when I don't really have like a solid, uh, grounding, I guess. And that's why I think that what I was trying to work through in those poems
1: in the big one field notes, like you get that sense that you are trying to uncover what was lost or to like refine that space. Um, And I thought, I mean, during COVID, which is like a weird time without space. (laughs) I've also been writing a lot about dreams. So it was really um, like, I found very interesting to come and read your sort of journey through your dreams. Did you find like writing about dreams or trying to make sense of them in the book was used? Like how did that process feel?
3: The kind of stuff of dreams for me is really kind of, I guess is like estranged from meaning. Um, or like, it, it's, it's, uh, like looking at meaning through like a stormy sea, right. It's like hard to, um, it feels like it feels true, whatever is happening in the dream, but it's very hard to understand, uh, which is kind of like a poem, I guess. Um, and so I had a, a dream journal. That uh, just on my phone, like the notes on my phone. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of wake up and be very diligent about recording my dreams. So I had a lot of uh, information to work with. Um, but I wanted to go beyond just kind of the retelling of the dreams. Uh, because for me, like if somebody starts telling me their dream, I don't particularly find it interesting. And that's kind of where the, 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 collection started was that I was wondering if I could do anything to with this material of my dreams to make it like something beyond just just telling somebody my dreams uh and I hope that I I so like so a lot of the poems start in a dream and then by the end of it you're you're actually in reality um so yeah so so I, that's what I was trying to do.
1: I wasn't ever quite sure if we like when we were in reality or when we were in the dream. That concept of like talking about addiction or like that nowhere space that you are, um, some like when you are in that sort of lifestyle, fit really well with the dreams, yeah. um, and like yeah, as an as a like parallel worlds to explore that worked well together. Yeah. That's that's another thing I was
3: hoping would work. So I'm glad that you read it that way.
1: Thank you. Your mother turns up in this book, and there's a bit of your father, and your sister also turns up and sort of like
3: Yeah, first um, time my sister's been in my books. Is um, it the first well
1: she was in Get Me, isn't she sort of in Get yes, Me Out? Of that's Here? right. She yes. was
3: she she did provide one kind of observation for the poems in Get Me Out of Here. Um, but yeah, she I have I had um she often figured in uh, my relapse dreams. Um, and I think I wrote three relapse streams about about her, but I think only one of them made it into the book um because she was always I was always trying to hide my addiction from her um in real life. and um even though she's always been my biggest support and like you know, um, yeah, so yeah, just just one 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 sister
1: poem. I think <laughs> was it hard? Do you think has she read the collection?
3: Um, I don't, I actually haven't given her a copy yet, but, um, <laughs> I should do that. It's just been so like, I have this baby and, yeah. uh, trying to shift gears between baby and book has just been like, oh, yeah. No
1: kidding. Yeah. And there's, yeah. Well, also, I mean, you I don't know exactly when you finished your book, but like your baby before being baby <laughs> also sort yeah. of figures in your book as well. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. How was it writing or like having this book sort of coming together before big life? Event?
3: Uh, well, I wrote most of it like long before I even got pregnant. Mm. Um, and so uh, I was just um, editing well, mostly editing and just finishing up a few poems, like when I was pregnant. It's a, it's a hard book. It's like, there's a lot of darkness in this book. And it's funny because After uh, becoming a parent, it feels even more distant than like it did when I was writing it, because my life is so different now. Like my life is completely different now that I'm a parent. Um, And there is a lot of poems I think I would have written differently now, especially I have a poem about milk at the very beginning of the book that uh, would be a very different poem uh, from this side of, of parenthood. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um I also I wanted to talk about um
1: the the sort of the three part um the three part poem. Uh so first try or failure, there's nothing there and try, which I think yeah um, is also like pre-Dates motherhood. <laughs> um yes, well yeah. 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 And so I was wondering if you could um for like the interview, maybe give us a little context about where that came from. And then I was interested because it started out as like a collaborative performed ritual and then it became like a piece in the book.
3: Yeah, Um, I can. Yeah, sure. I can tell you. And maybe that's I could read that. mm -hmm. Um, So what happened with that is uh, First Try or Failure is a poem that I wrote while I was having a miscarriage. Um, And it was... uh, not fun and kind of just like all it was coming, it was happening in real time as I was writing this poem. Um, And it was a, it's a hard poem for me. Like it's not like, I never write anything like super graphic, but for me, like, because of the feelings I associated with it, it was very hard. And then, so I had this really dark, hard poem and I just wondering, was wondering what I could do with it. And Margaret Christakos, who is a wonderful poet who lives here in Toronto, invited me to take part in a, uh, event called listen deep and, uh, which was about, um, listening and, um, sound. And, uh, so for that event, I wanted to do something. Um, and I just created this ritual around this poem for that event in which I invited, uh, poets that I know, um, all women in Uh, identified and they I read first try or failure and then they read another poem I wrote called uh, there's nothing there which is what uh, the um, ultrasound technician told me um, when she was looking for the a fetus of of another miscarriage Um, and um, so they read that poem And I listened to them and as I was listening to them, I wrote over the first poem Mm. to see what kind of transformation could have happened as a result of being kind of held in uh, the sound of that community. Mm. So that's how those three poems uh, work together. Yeah. And I, and I decided that that would be like a one, one time deal that like, I would just do that once and then The result of it is what's in the book. So first try or failure. It comes a gush of mirror of mirror of what I resembled yesterday, reconstituted on the horizontal axis. The scatter dot evidence, the dread of the forms, algorithmic tissue, and abstraction of she, as in nothing flushes under scrutiny more than she presupposes nothing but grief or possible endless. First trimesters strung together mothballs 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 on the sill under the same sun as yesterday's still or demonstrable now or misgiving or almost nothing worth mentioning the lack of gerund the sound of the sea or the empty sea or no sea sounds as empty as this sounding through the appropriate way to bring up emptiness downward solitary fast, intelligent flesh, and in doing despite data, delivered under the coursing fact. Whatever they said the moment might surrender, it's all blood, all now. There's nothing there. The slack, gel slides, the dry bed, sound of the wanted, held to hear, hoofbeats. no sound, see sounds as empty as this gel on empty, sound bed of the wanted throat sounding throat sounds like the empty way said there's nothing to say the slack surface of there's nothing there see sounds nothing see sounds there nothing there of nothing not the here in the slack see try try It comes a voice in mirror and mirror of what I am here, now reconstituted in the library of all places. Their voices evidence the call of their bodies, algorithmic tissue an expression of she as in nothing flushes under scrutiny more than she presupposes the sound of possible endless first tries strung together. Voices, voices, Voices behind me, holding me, still demonstrable, she and misgiving are almost a sound worth listening to, the lack of the sound of she, she, or no, she sounds empty now, sounding through the appropriate way to bring up emptiness, outward, community, fast, intelligent flash, and doing, despite data delivered under their coursing noise, whatever they said, the moment might surrender. It's all here, all now.
1: Thank you so much for reading that piece. Thank it's, you for asking me. Yeah, it's really lovely to hear, um, to hear it read aloud. And like, as much as I know you won't do it again, I'm like I would love to hear <laughs> when I was reading about your notes about how that came to be um I also really like I've been working on contrapuntals with some friends recently so like you're the there's nothing there like the ways that that poem can be read like you read it straight the column straight down so p- people get the books like you can also read it across or That's like right, you can read section by sentence yeah yes. um and it works like really well in other ways so like I really appreciate it like your command of language is always very strong and like I felt oh. very much in this piece, um, especially. <laughs> um, in this collection, the other si- series of poems that stood out to me um, were the thanidif- Thanatophobia. Uh, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I think that's the emphasis right there. Um, and so there's three of them in, in the book. Um, and they're all, say they stood out to me because they're sort of outside of, they stand out to me as being sort of outside of the book because um, there's this like he who sort of, this very specific he, who I guess is Thanatos, who sort of, or death, um, yeah. who's always being spoken about Um, And it's like the section where it's not about, the eye is not as present as all the other poems. I was wondering if you could talk about like how you see these poems fitting into the collection.
3: Ah, well, it's, so thanatophobia means the fear of death and specifically like one's own death, Um, not just death as a concept, but like the extinction of your consciousness, uh, which is something that I've uh, had a problem with since I was seven years old uh, and continues to this day. Um, it's kind of like really morbid fear of death, uh, which I think we all would have if we weren't like distracted by things all the time. Um, and, um, I, so it's, it, that poem, there's a figure of death and, um, in the first section there is, um, it's about, it, it takes place in the kind of origin section of the book talking about my childhood and um there is uh the kind of absence of parents uh they're kind of um eluded or elighted they're disappeared by the passive voice so um it's just me and death in those poems uh, and then kind of he's just is this enduring figure that kind of follows me throughout the rest of my life he shows up also in the very last second to last poem of the book um so uh because it's such a big part of my consciousness that's why it's in the book is because uh it's something that I'm like continually like obsessed about so that's why he's there and I guess I also wanted um a variety like my poem my books aren't really um aesthetically cohesive. Um, so I try a lot of different styles in the book. And the, the Natophobia poems are kind of like more narrative than other poems in the book, just kind of like um, more straightforward little stories. Um, and I wanted those to kind of be touchstones throughout the book to kind of check in to see like um to kind of give a bit of a ground. Little uh, stepping stones,
1: yeah. Well, they definitely acted as stepping stones for me, and I, well, yeah, um, and I, I mean, I think that that's the strength of part of your of your books, and that's what I've always enjoyed about coming to read them is that there is so much variety in style in in terms of like. What you're doing with your poems, or how you're playing um, with like whether it's the language or the page. You're one of the poets that stands out to me as doing something different every time <laughs> in their okay. books. Do you find that a challenge sometimes when you're bringing a collection together? That yeah, you have
3: so much. Yeah, I I always think it's like a a weakness, um, but I just get really bored of writing the same kind of poem over and over again. Like I can't imagine just like writing, you know, like a hundred sonnets in iambic pentameter like rhyming you know like there's nothing wrong with that like i would love i just i just don't think i could sustain it that long. It's like the same reason why i don't write a novel is that i just can't sustain something for that long i get bored and i just want to like try something else and i just feel like i like i feel like when i keep writing in the same way i like i feel like i get into these ruts in in writing and i feel like i just keep pulling the same tricks over and over again. And so then it stops feeling exciting to me because I'm like, oh, I'm just following my own formula now. So I try to like pull the rug out from under, under myself. I want it to be an adventure or else like, what's the point?
1: Mm -hmm. What was like on this collection? Like what was the biggest adventure for you in these poems? If there is one.
3: Um, I mean, the biggest challenge I think was trying to write like, um, dream poems about dreams that were actually like interesting and went beyond just the material of the dreams. Um, And so like whether or not that was like, if it stayed in the dream, then I tried to make sure there was a lot happening with form. So there was like something else happening at the same time as just a poem about a dream or uh, it would kind of shift to real life or um, something like that. So that was kind of the biggest challenge for me, I think. And you also,
1: um, you also brought in like your experiences with therapy into the book. Did you see Um, it as a creative process?
3: Well, the therapy, the big one field notes is where I talk about my experience with like, kind of like somatic therapy or a little bit about that experience. Um, and for me that, uh, is so tied up in the experience of like, um, kind of trauma and the body and memory and those gaps and the kind of things that get held there and um, what happens when I'm writing, it, like when I try to write about Vancouver, um, all that is all kind of like wrapped up together. So I thought that, um, that's actually the first poem that I wrote for the book was that was that one about okay. therapy. So it's kind of where it started. Um, and then I, I don't, I didn't really stay with it like for the whole thing but um yeah that's why I wrote about therapy (laughs) it started in therapy (laughs) it started in therapy and then it kind of just it went off the rails
1: yeah yeah well I think it went off the rails um in a good way and it
3: was Um, important for me to also be like um this is like it's not just over now that like I went to therapy and now it's now my trauma is gone or my relationship with my past is healed you know it's like uh that's not my experience um definitely it's better than it was but it it that's why the therapy stuff kind of comes in the middle of the book because it's not the beginning or the end and now we're like living in a
1: different world, not only to have okay. a baby, but we're <laughs> in a different place. Um, I've been, uh, I know you spoke a little bit about this, but like writing during a pandemic time or also being a new mom, like lots, yeah. I know lots of new moms who are like, now I'm just a new mom and the writing is yeah. second. Uh, I was wondering, how is, how's that been going?
3: My baby is not a quote unquote good sleeper. Uh, so um I need a lot of sleep, <laughs> uh, especially to write. Like I, for me, writing takes like, like, like an extreme amount of concentration um, and concentration for me requires sleep. And uh, in order to make the writing happen, I need to have more sleep and more time. So I don't have right now, I don't have I have like very few hours without my baby. Um, she, she's kind of always with me. Uh, which I love, and she's my like total focus. Like my focus has completely shifted. Um, so I and I always give myself a break after finishing a book. Like I don't put any pressure on myself to start a new project uh, until I'm kind of done promoting this one, <laughs> the current one. So uh, so there's that. So no, I'm not writing. Um, I'm yeah, uh, and launching it during a pandemic I, has been uh, you know, mixed blessing because, uh, I, I can't get books in people's hands at events, which is usually what happens with poetry is that's where the the books get into people's hands. Uh, but at the same time, um, I'm supposed to be on a book tour right now Mm -hmm. uh, with an eight month old baby. (laughs) So I don't know what I was thinking when I was planning that. Um, uh, so I mean, it's very convenient for me to, to do all this stuff from, from my office. Interviews from so, in your office. <laughs> yeah. It's like really, uh, yeah, it's for me, it's, it's really great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, Cause I'm just so, I'm like, I'm lucky that I'm, I would be at home anyways. And like mm-hmm. I, I don't have that pressure to like go out and I'm just like really, really lucky. It's, it's nice to do it from my office. <laughs> yeah. Vancouver figures
1: in this book because it is sort of the location of so much of the trauma that is discussed in it and now you live in Toronto um yeah (laughs) does that is that a better place for like well you wrote the book in Toronto though is that right
3: yeah I've lived in Toronto since 2009 I know it's a place of trauma but do you ever miss Vancouver oh I mean that's like one of the questions in the book right yes right yes of course I miss Vancouver Vancouver is like um like in terms of the climate and the, um, greenery, it's like paradise and the, it's just, you know, the best place on earth, um, for me, but, uh, it's also, yeah, it's my life is here now. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. and like, I don't know, like the, I, every time I go back, like I know I write about in the book about like somebody asked you that question. And the first thing I think about is, um, just being like completely messed up and like, like just like driving down the streets instead of like being in Vancouver all I'm thinking about is like going to score drugs um so but every time I go back it's like a little bit less of that Mm -hmm. not Montreal I lived in Montreal for two years I don't have any good memories of that place so do you find like um how space like
1: places or other cities always had those sort of like ties for you like your Toronto neutral zone for you
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been sober almost the entire time I've lived in Toronto. So I moved here in like August of 2009. And then I spent the next year trying to get sober and then have been sober since like October, 2010. I have, you know, happy, sad, joyful, frustrating, like every kind of memory that I could have in Toronto, but they've all been sober. That's been nice. (laughs) Yeah. Because for me, like, I just don't get as dark as I, as I did. And the darkness just got so super duper dark in Vancouver and it just never has gotten that dark in, in Toronto.
1: Did you leave because of that darkness or were there other oh, things yeah. that brought you to Toronto?
3: Yeah, I definitely left. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm.
1: I have had friends who've also had to leave where they lived because of that. Oh yeah. We call
3: it, we call it a geographical cure. Like, oh, I'll just move across the country and then my whole life will be different. I mean, for me, just moving wasn't enough. I had to do a lot of other things to make my life better. Did it take a while to become comfortable talking about that in general? There's some things that like, I feel more comfortable writing about, like uh, being an addiction. Like, so uh, I was in a 12-step program for many years. And one of the biggest parts of that program is narrative building. I use a lot of the language of 12-step in the book about like talking about your life as what it was like when you were in addiction, what happened to make you stop and what your life is like as a sober person. A lot of that is like getting up in front of rooms full of like hundreds of people and then talking about like your darkest parts of yourself. So you get really used to that um, and it just becomes very normal and it like... I forget sometimes that like if you like mention that you smoke crack to like, you know, people just like like at a literary event they look at you funny. They <laughs> 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 just, I just yeah. don't. So sometimes like I mean like sometimes I do probably go in the realm of oversharing, but like I don't think that I would have been able to write about it if it didn't feel like very much in the past. Other things in the book that like I write about like um some of the uh, sexual trauma and stuff is uh, a little bit more vulnerable making which is weird because like a lot of that is it's is it feels harder because I I that's not something that I talked about publicly Mm -hmm.
1: we talk about it publicly like it's a common sub more common subject than who has or has not smoked crack in the room but yeah like yeah it can be a more personal experience because you have one of those closer to the end of the book as well I had a very emotional response to that one as
3: well yeah, sometimes I feel like like I should have put more of a trigger warning on the book. Um, but hopefully, just from reading the back, it's like trauma, addiction. <laughs> that, there's going to be a lot of dark things in here, so look out. That poem is about living kind of in the aftermath of um, of an assault and kind of living with that person in your community and and trying to deal with that. I want to come back to the title
1: because uh, it ha- it plays throughout the book, not necessarily in all of the poems. though it appears there a little bit, but in like the subtitle of each section. Yeah, yeah. you're playing around with it, um, yeah. and I wanted to know how you think this idea of to rend, like the verb to render, figures or shaped your book.
3: I'm still kind of divided on the title. <laughs> Sometimes I think I should have had a, a longer title rather than just a one word title, but. I mean like every poem is a kind of rendering. It's one of those poetry words that people really love because it has so many meanings. Cool. I like the 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 sound the that it has rend in it, which okay. is to tear apart, but to render is to kind of assemble or to like you know create something new. Um and I guess that was kind of where I why I chose it because poetry or maybe these poems are kind of like a tearing apart and like a and a coming together. Um, and then also the kind of the melting aspect, I always really liked it, that um, this hard relationship with memory and it's all very fluid.
1: Thanks for this book, Sachiko. It is a book that deserves like two or three readings. Um, just because of its structure and how it's put together. Um, I love that in a book that makes you want to come back to it. So thank you very much for it.
3: Thanks so much for reading and for having me.
0: That was Nina's conversation with Sachiko Murakami. Join us on Tuesday for the next installment of Writers Festival Radio, A Life with Books, Writers, and Virago, which features Emma Donahue in conversation with Lenny Goodings. Thanks again to Jillian Christmas, Sachiko Murakami, and Nina Jane Dreistek for participating in Writers' Festival Radio. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.